Good morning. One of the most difficult things I have ever done in my life was to try to keep up with Jayla, my wife, on the Appalachian Trail. She's one of those people that, I, I'm not kidding, just doesn't get tired, especially hiking. Maybe in motherhood, uh, so tribute to all you mothers. Uh, I think uh, what you have done and are doing is harder than hiking 2,000 miles. But I, I kid you not, I don't think I saw her tired on the entire time that we spent walking from Maine to Georgia. And I spent the entire time really just wanting to sit down. <laughs> And, and I think there's something about that. When you're hiking with someone, when your hiking partner is a little bit quicker than you, then all you can think about is sitting down. And every single rock, everything, everything you pass looks really comfortable, if you've ever had that feeling. And, um, and, and along all of those beautiful uh, rocks and stumps that I would like to think of, I, I did notice another thing that was in the woods from time to time that I desperately <laughs> wanted to take a break on or around. And that was, and that was a cooler. Now you might wonder, why in the world would there be a cooler in the middle of the woods on this trail, this, this footpath that's running from Maine to Georgia? And the answer to that question is trail magic. See, there is this cultural uh, thing along the corridor of the AT where people live there, people who know through hikers, just, just randomly do kind things to take care of people. And one of my favorite ways that people did that was to leave a cooler full of cold Cokes and Snickers and like sandwiches. I mean, they, people got really creative. You never knew what you were going to look in. <laughs> you never knew what you were going to find when you looked in one of these coolers. Um, but, but the feeling you got when you, when you walked up to that cooler and you were about to look inside and you knew that all you had in your backpack was like leftover ramen and maybe some cashews that you were kind of tired of and you opened and you found a Coke. There's no better feeling right there. And, but but it, it went a little further because, like I said, I really enjoyed sitting. And while I enjoyed sitting so much, I got a chance to talk to some of these trail magicians and to kind of see them at work. And, and the concept that I saw most when I saw them at work was the concept of intrinsic motivation. See, nobody was paying them to take care of hungry hikers. There wasn't any external incentive structure to, to try to make people... Uh, be kind in that way. Um, and, and you really saw that wh whatever motivated the, them to do that was very internal. It was very core to who they were as people. Intrinsic motivation can be defined as the human inherent tendency to seek out novelty and challenges, to learn and explore. And it's important uh, to counselors and psychologists because it's connected to two other concepts. Um, so th this will be quick, um, but it's, it's connected to flow state and joy or contentment. So it's connected to this idea of flow, and many of you have probably heard of flow. I bet most of you experienced it. But it's the state of mind when you're doing something that you enjoy so much or you're so focused on that there's no room in your mind for any other thought. There's no room for judging your performance. There's no room... Um, for thinking about, am I doing this quite right? You're just in that moment. I think musicians feel that. I think musician, I think skiers can feel that. I think you can feel that talking to a friend. And, and a hallmark of flow state is losing your awareness of time. Time just seems to fly by when you're having fun. And this is also connected to people's 
to people's pursuit of joy. Now, not just, and we're not just talking about extrinsic joy here. We're not just talking about the joy you feel when something good happens to you. We're talking about a deeper level of contentment, of joy. Have you ever, have you ever met somebody whose joy seemed to, seemed to be from a deeper place than the experiences they were going through that day? The joy that wells up inside of you instead of coming at you from, from the world around. This is, this is intrinsic joy. And I, and I think that, that these people and these experiences have something to show us. But sometimes when you were a hungry hiker and you walked up to this cooler, the cooler was empty. And you knew that all those other hikers that you were friends with that left earlier that morning or all the people that you passed that day, they all got a Snickers and you didn't. And, and, I, th- and I think this is an important little piece because sometimes our intrinsic motivation can get tired, right? Sometimes if we're not aware of the source of our joy, we can become a little empty. I think the passage we read today points, uh, points to a path to a deeper spiritual flow or spiritual intrinsic motivation or, or, or a love so deep that it's a little bit more important than intrinsic motivation. So with that in mind, let's look at our passage. I think there's three things you need to know in the background to really understand this passage. And I think they change the lens that we look through. Um, the first is, is who wrote it. It's First Peter, so most people think Peter wrote it. I think that's why they named it after him. And scholars, most scholars agree that that's probably who wrote it. And that's important because we know when Peter would have probably written it. So if Peter did write it, he would have written it, he would have written it in the 60s. Not the 1960s, the A.D. 60s. And this is important because it places this writing, this letter, to a people group that were living in Rome under a kind of infamous emperor. They were living under Emperor Nero. If you've heard anything about Emperor Nero, it's probably not positive. He's not remembered for many positive things. Um, Most of the things that would be the story of his reign would be things that we probably shouldn't talk about in church. Uh, But I'll give you kind of like the two cents. So it's it's almost as if um, that person that maybe you went to school with or maybe you knew in ninth grade, kind of 15, 16-year-old, um, that, that just seemed to have an ill will. Maybe they went through a lot of difficult things as a child, we don't know. Um, but they weren't a very kind person naturally. It's as if that person suddenly and kind of unexpectedly was given the power to the entire emperor, uh, empire, to, to the entire military, to the entire economy, everything, at 16. And so this power didn't exactly, uh, I don't think it made him become a particularly nice person. Um, and he thought that one of the best ways he could use this, his power was to persecute Christians. So when we read from the passage today, Peter writing to people will say, who's going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be threatened. Right? Like if you're getting a letter and you're living under Emperor Nero and it says, who's going to harm you? I really wonder if these people, these early Christians were like, I know exactly who is going to harm me. It's that guy. It's Emperor Nero. Like, what are you talking about, Peter? Right? It would have been kind of confusing. So to, to, to see the end of this piece, we need to fast forward 
100 to 200 years. If you fast forward just a little bit, in either 100 or 200 years, you end up in one of the great Roman plagues. Different time, different emperor, same people who had been practicing trusting and obeying and had been practicing placing their hope, placing their joy, placing their motivation in something deeper than the experiences of today. Now, in these great Roman plagues, which they think was probably smallpox, uh, the Christians were started to really cause some problems for the emperors, um, which, but not quite the problems you would think they would cause. See, Romans, when they knew somebody was coming down with the sickness, they kind of had two ways that they would respond to their friends and family. One of them was to head for the hills. Um, one of the great physicians actually did this, just left Rome, just go and live in the countryside, come back when it seems like things are uh, abating. The other way uh, that Romans would respond to their friends and their family is to push them out the door into the streets where the dead and the dying lay and, and just try to contain the, the illness. But Christians were a little different. They had a different worldview, and they had a different response. See, the Christians in this time frame intentionally stayed in the city centers and cared for the inflicted. They intentionally cared for not only their own people who were experiencing the plague, but also for, for the Romans. And this impacted the society in ways um, that, that were... I mean, just it impacted all of these society. Um, so much so that one emperor, a little later, uh, was writing a letter to one of his kind of chief aides, and he said, this, he said, this is such a problem, we need to create a program to hand out food and wine so that we don't look so bad of the Christians that are taking care of not only their poor and their sick, but also our poor and our sick, and our poor and our sick are joining with the Christians, and we just can't have this. See, see, the motivation to do something like that, it, it can't be external. It has to be internal. And I, think, and I think we know probably which of these programs where it's like the Christians motivated by love or the, or the people who were being told by the emperor at the time to do this. I think we know probably which program was more successful. But I think there's a little bit more here. See, if we fast forward just a chapter more into Peter, into 1 Peter 4, he says something that I think is really interesting. He says, above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have, been received, you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. There's a hint here at something that's deeper than just intrinsic motivation. And there's two pieces that I think are, are summed up in one sentence. Each of you should use whatever gift you have been received to serve others. Right? And the two pieces are, where, what, is, what is your love focused on and what is your love fueled by? See, in this, in this, in this place, we can't be the recipient of our own loving action. It says, above all, love each other deeply. It was a community thing. And also know that whatever you're giving people, however you're loving it, is something that you've, you are, were first given. Our gift is fueled by God's gift. 
And I think this is, this is the beginning, this is the trailhead to that path, to the intrinsic joy we talked about just a few moments ago. When we love and care for others out of our own strength, I think we grow tired eventually and empty like a cooler on the side of the trail. It's a good thing. It's really a beautiful thing. But it's short term. But when we are focused on others and fueled by God's love, we find love and strength within us that we didn't even know was there. When I was growing up, I had a, I had a gift. When I was in middle school, I, I knew of a gift. I had some knowledge that I loved to share with people. Um, I grew up kind of around, my dad worked at a children's home, and the children's home was on a ranch, and there were three buildings in a, on, kind of in a row, nondescript buildings. You wouldn't think any of them. You would have driven right by. Um, but, but if you played Goldilocks, in these buildings, and, and you kind of knocked on the first one, you, you would have seen kind of a nondescript storage building. It was interesting to look in, but there was really nothing of consequence in there. And if you knocked on the second building, you would have seen the maintenance shed. So you would have found some lawnmowers and the smell of gasoline and maybe some lawn clippings or something. But again, not, nothing really to write home about. But if you kept knocking and you knocked on the third door, on this ranch, I, you would have found Coulter's seventh grade version of the promised land. You, you would have found the land flowing with milk and frozen pizzas. You see, this, this ranch, this children's home, needed to have a place to store all of their food for the entire community. And so if you walked in, it, it, was, it, was like a, it was like a convenience store filled with everything you would actually buy at a grocery store from dish detergent to frozen pizzas to produce, anything, anything you would want. And it was just there. It was just there to, to feed people. There was no pretense. There was no, uh, there was no teller. There was no checkout line. There was nothing you needed. And I loved telling my friends about this place. Because when you're in seventh grade, you're hungry. And all these other people, you know, I, I think for a while, I think I tried to rescue people from grocery stores. I was like, hey, I know a better place. You're, you're fine. <laughs> um, and, and, and there's a couple things I think we can learn from this image in our mind. One of them, I wasn't looking back on it, I know now, that I don't think I was really supposed to know the code to get in there. I, I don't think I was really supposed to be taking food out of there, but I felt so comfortable. I felt like it was my right. I felt like it was fine to do. And why? Because of my relationship with my dad. See, I knew, I knew through association that it was fine if I went in there. My dad worked there. It was food storage. We're all good, right? And I think there's a similarity here spiritually to the source of love, like the cosmic source of love that we have through association, through being adopted into the family through Jesus and being loved by God. But that's not all. Notice that there was no teller. There was no checkout line. There was no... Some, no no addition for how many frozen pizzas you wanted, right? There, it, didn't, it didn't work like that. And I think that's similar to our spiritual lives too, but it doesn't mean that that food wasn't valuable either, right? That food had simply already been paid for. I think that's the same thing. The love we've been given in our adoption into this family is valuable. It's extremely valuable, but it's already been paid. Thirdly, it doesn't run out like trail magic. I, you could have a lot of hungry guys living at this ranch, and, they, and it never ran out. I mean, I've never seen it run out. We've tried. We've tried to eat it all, and it doesn't, it doesn't run out. 
And you don't even have to be a thru-hiker to go eat there. Anyone can. And I think, fourthly, it is so, it was such an enjoyable experience that it begged to be shared. If you knew about it and you knew where it was and you were passing in the vicinity, you wanted to show somebody. You were like, hey, like, let me show you this maintenance building. It's amazing. And, uh, and I think our spiritual lives are the same, right? And I want you to imagine for just a second as we close Jesus as a hiker on the Appalachian Trail. Um, you don't have to imagine too much because I think he did a lot of hiking, honestly. Um, but I, want, I, think you, I want you to imagine him walking up on a scene and walking up on a cooler that was empty. There was a lot of hikers kind of mourning uh, that they're not going to get Snickers that day. Uh, and I want you to imagine that he offers to show the other hikers the cosmic source of all food, of all sustenance, right? It was sustenance so, eat, so deep that if you eat this, you're never going to grow hungry again. Joy so full that whatever the weather of today's shifting experiences, like it doesn't touch it, right? A flow state so long that it becomes a lifestyle itself. You know, in John, in John 7, uh, he, Jesus was standing in the crowd at the end of a festival, a lot of people around, they would have been pretty thirsty. Um, kind of like hikers um, trying to get to town, maybe, in hunger. And he yelled at them, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Kind of similar, right? See, I believe that we are like hikers who are content with picked-over trail magic while God is trying to show us the way to the source of sustenance itself. It seems like many of the Christians in this early church found this source. I hope that we endeavor to love God and love people as they did. Let's spend a few moments in prayer.